It's a day of remembrance from New York to Puerto Rico. We're here today because on this day, at this time, Hurricane Maria was making landfall in Puerto Rico. We're never going to know how many people died as a direct cause of the hurricane, but we're here today to read some of their names. Carmen Teresa Rosado Rodriguez. Presente. Josefa Chavez Reverol. Presente. Serelda Rodriguez Olmeda. Presente. On September 20th, 2017, at approximately 6.15 a.m., Hurricane Maria made landfall just south of the Yabucoa Harbor in Puerto Rico. It was a Category 4 hurricane with winds up to 155 miles an hour. The entire island was without power. For some residents, that lasted for months and months. Maria took down trees and roofs, it tore out roads and devastated farms, it flooded streets and left thousands without shelter or access to medicine, clean water, or even food. According to the best estimates, nearly 3,000 people died. But one year later, the Puerto Rican people say they are more resilient than ever. We get out of this destruction ourselves. We don't have to depend on the government. They all came together as one. A lot of Puerto Ricans survive. People are, tend to live now more in tune of what, they, uh, what we have in Puerto Rico. Build something and, sh and live our lives with as much dignity as we can because that's resistance in itself. We were in a good track. Uh, a lot of people reinvent themselves. But this hurricane, this monster, unified us. We trust in us. This is The Takeaway. I'm Tanzina Vega, and I'm coming to you today from WIPR in San Juan, Puerto Rico. My team and I came to Puerto Rico eager to explore not only how the island's economic, environmental, and political landscape has changed since Maria, but also how Puerto Rican identity has transformed one year after the storm. And it was my first time back since April 2017. So what we're doing now, we kind of went off the main road, but that little road right there, right where we came off, I don't know if you saw where it said Barceloneta, that right there was where my grandfather lived, right up in that little mountain. It turns out a lot has changed since last September. Hurricane Maria, it seems, was a catalyst, a spark that lit a fire that had been smoldering for years. It was a slow-burning frustration over things like unemployment, access to goods and services, recognition, and self-governance. Hurricane Maria blew the lid off an island that some say was partly paralyzed by its status as a U.S. territory. The storm got people out to clean up debris and rebuild their own communities. And that action has turned into activism. Now it feels the island cannot be stopped. Puerto Ricans want rights, they want to be heard, and most importantly, they want control over their own destiny. Hi, my name is Stephanie Nieves Rios. I am from Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico, and I am a member of the Mutual Support Center La Olla Común in Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico. Stephanie Rios is fighting for self-determination from within La Olla Común. It's one of a dozen or so Centros de Apoyo Mutuo, or Centers of Mutual Support, that opened on the island in the immediate aftermath of the storm. It's just past 10 a.m. on a Monday morning, and inside El Ensayo in the Rio Piedras neighborhood of San Juan, breakfast is being served. Beans and cremita de maíz, along with a tray holding thick chunks of bread. We did these projects as a response to Maria, but the crisis in Puerto Rico isn't post-Maria. The people that came to eat here 
most of them still do because they still have those needs and they still did before. The space is part theater, part cafe, and part bar. Hanging alongside bottles of liquor is the Puerto Rican flag. But instead of red and blue, its stripes and star are white and black. I think it's a symbol of resistance. You know, I think that it's important that even though it's black, and black often is when you are mourning. It's not about mourning, it's about resistance. It's about sending a clear message that Puerto Ricans aren't happy with the political situation and that we are going to fight back. La Olla Comun is making that fight accessible to all types of Puerto Ricans, regardless of whether or not they were engaged in any kind of activism before the storm. It's important for me to say that it's not about talking about parties or who you vote for. It's not just that, and it's barely that. It's about the lives that we live. And I think there's this idea that people don't know anything. People are just ignorant. And I think Puerto Rican people? Well, Puerto Rican people and all people is what we talk about when we say people don't know what's going on, and that's not true. And I'm talking now about Puerto Rican people because when we say people don't know, that's so disrespectful, I think, because people are living these lives. So, of course, people know that there's poverty and homelessness. And, of course, people know that there's abuse going on and there's corruption. What people don't have is clear ways to understand it. I think that when we say ignorance, and I've been thinking about this recently a lot, when we call people ignorant, we, we give them the guilt, right? Like it's their fault that they're ignorant. People aren't ignorant. People have been, people have been negated knowledge. And Hurricane Maria was this moment that forced a lot of people who hadn't done it before to have to do that because suddenly it wasn't, oh, I'm poor and I'm going about my life and I'm working and I'm trying to figure it out. It's, I don't have a home. People around me don't have a home. And spaces like this, which isn't the only one, this is a network of mutual support centers, as well as other projects that popped up, kind of gave people a space to both find that comfort and also to talk about these things. And suddenly talking about Puerto Rico as a colony wasn't such a foreign concept. I feel like there's also two uh, emerging ideas when we talk about identity. And my sense is, when I ask people about the relationship with the United States, that's one identity. And when I ask people about their relationship to each other, as Boricuas, as Puerto Ricans, as what they're trying to build, it's a very clear distinction. In relation to the U.S., we're a colony, we're this yes but no, we fall into the abyss, we're not really sure what's going on. But in relation to each other, we suddenly had an awakening that we are Puerto Ricans and we're going to band together. That's kind of what you're saying, right? I think that happened in, in a lot of spaces because it had to. And I think that it's sustained. And I think that it's hard because the issue of our status has been constantly historically used to manipulate the Puerto Rican people. And I think that this experience has, yes, kind of made more, more concrete these bonds between us, or rather named them more because I think they've always existed. But it's also kind of made that colonial perspective a lot more visible. And I think that it's hard to speak about all Puerto Ricans because that would be impossible. But I know that for us, working here and with other people around the island in projects like ours, we feel that way. And we feel that way because we want to be a part of making that happen. And, and not making it happen in a way where we want to somehow make people into a single identity or have this mass like Puerto Rican project, but, but to help people 
decolonize themselves and decolonize each other. And what does that consist of? How do you decolonize? I mean, because I see it here, decolonize this place. But then the question is, how does one decolonize without being completely independent? Do you start with the mind? Do you start with the money? Do you, like, where do you begin? Because we are in this limbo, right? And a lot of people are describing exactly what you said. We're in this netherland of identity. I think it's all of those things that you said. And I think that it's not one first and it's not second, the other. Uh, I think we have a real political issue when it comes into our, our status with the United States. People have different opinions on how they see that panning out. For us in this space, it's clear to us that at the hands of the U.S. government, as a colony, we're not going to go anywhere. And that there needs to be a transformation in that sense. But obviously that's something that is a long-term political project. So it also comes with something individual, and it has to. So it's a process of, of, of recognizing yourself as someone with power in your own life and someone powerful that is being oppressed. And I think in part it is about recognizing that we need an organized effort, um, both at our community level and our national level, to address both our internal needs and our relationship with the United States. So how did Puerto Rico get this complicated relationship with the United States? And what's been the impact of the relationship on the progress of the island? For that, we need a little bit of history. The Commonwealth, so-called, or Estado Libre Asociado in Spanish, is a, a version of modern colonialism. That's Frances Negron Montaner, a Puerto Rican filmmaker, writer, and scholar. And she's also a professor at Columbia University's Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. Puerto Rico's status is ambiguous at best. As a commonwealth, it's neither a state nor an independent nation. Legally, uh, the United States defines Puerto Rico as an unincorporated territory. That in short means it belongs to, but is not part of the United States. So it is a piece of property. In 1917, the United States made Puerto Ricans citizens. About 20,000 served in the U.S. Army during World War I. And while Puerto Ricans can travel freely between the island and the U.S., those living on the island still aren't allowed to vote for president and have just one non-voting representative in Washington. You can say that Puerto Rico under the U.S. has had three major economic models. One was agriculture, but based on sugar. The second one was industrial factories. Initially, uh, these factories were producing electronics, apparel, textiles, uh, and uh, uh, petrochemicals eventually. And then you have the current model, which we could describe as neoliberal austerity, debt centered model of extraction. Each model marked a turning point for the island. The most significant was Operation Bootstrap, a 1940s plan intended to modernize the Puerto Rican economy. But Francis says that like the other models, it ultimately served U.S. interests first. The reason that Puerto Rico was poor then and is poor now is because the economic models are designed to favor U.S. capital by extracting wealth from Puerto Rico to the mainland. Today, Puerto Rico is $74 billion in debt, 
Unemployment has ticked to over 10%. The healthcare system, recently privatized, is collapsing. Both primary and secondary education are also in crisis. And almost 44% of the island lives in poverty. That's double the rate of Mississippi, the poorest state in the United States. And the culmination of all these factors, plus the devastation from Hurricane Maria, have led Puerto Ricans to ask yet again, what should our relationship with the United States be? What would benefit us the most? Of course, it all depends who's asking that question as well. But what relationship brings the greatest benefits to Puerto Ricans on the island? And if you look at the 100 plus years since the invasion, you'll see that there are three forces that have dominated. One is that one that views that the best relationship is Puerto Rico to become a state of the United States. Another one that sees that it's better for Puerto Rico to become an independent nation state. And a third one that believes that we should come to some kind of autonomous government that still retains uh, fundamental ties to the United States, what some people call the status quo. Statehood is one of the three positions held on the island relating to this big question of Puerto Rico status. There are also those who believe in maintaining the status quo and a small group that believe that the only response to colonialism is to be free from it. But statehood is the vision for the future held by many Republicans. In the last referendum, only 23% of registered voters in Puerto Rico cast ballots, but almost all of them wanted statehood. One of the people who did vote was Edgar Velasco. We are a part of the nation already. We are American citizens already. All we are really asking for would be a major participation on decision-making. Edgar Velasco is a student at the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras, and he's also the state chairman for the College Republican Federation of Puerto Rico. As a Republican, yes, I believe in statehood because I have seen how not being treated equally has resulted in a lot of the problems we have right now. Obviously, also mixed with bad administration, a lot of corruption cases over the years, and some other elements that have been sometimes our fault and sometimes more of a result of the whole status and situation, political situation we're in. I have seen throughout my whole life how this island is treated unequally to our fellow American citizens on the mainland. We have struggled to provide for those because we don't have the same resources as jurisdictions on the mainland do. We don't have the same political power, ergo we're not able to negotiate as effectively as other jurisdictions are able to do so in the grand planning of our nation. And that is very influential to what has happened here and what continues to happen. As someone who is politically engaged even before Maria, I asked him how it makes him feel to be an American who can't pick the president. It's like being without a voice. Even though I am a proud American citizen, obviously we need a way for us to voice our specific concerns, our, our ideas, our prospects for the future. And it actually incentivizes you to either move back to the mainland where you have all of your rights, all of the rights you are entitled to by birth as an American citizen, or just staying here in the island at Congress's mercy. And one thing we've heard from a lot of the folks we've talked to on the island who are doing a lot of grassroots work, et cetera, mm -hmm. is that 
they felt like there was a sense of, you know what, it's time that the Puerto Rican population and community rebuilds itself. So there's a real sense of resilience that we're hearing. There's a real sense of, you know, grassroots, um, let's feed the people, let's house mm-hmm. the people. Do you think that's a viable long-term solution? Puerto Ricans are resilient and they always have been. But what I do not agree with, and this is something very political, people try to use this resiliency speech as uh, synonymous of an independent movement or so. That's not the case. And no no one who could actually understand how things work would actually say that because much of the rebuilding that's going on in the island is thanks to the federal government. And that's a fact. All of the funds that are coming for transportation, for education, for bridges, for government operations, for health are from the federal government. What is your plan personally like do you want to stay on the island we're talking to we you know just today or uh this week there were numbers from the census that showed an increase in the number of puerto ricans living in the united states that population is nearly double those that are on the island what's your plan well to tell you the truth i love my island but i do know that opportunities on the island are very scarce they're very limited And my plans are moving to the mainland, most probably after graduation. If I were to get an opportunity, I would definitely not think it twice before moving back to the mainland. And that's an important idea. For those who support statehood or, frankly, even the status quo, being an American citizen can be an incredibly valuable asset. It gives people like Edgar Velasco the chance to come to the U.S. and find work and opportunities. But some young people have no interest in coming to the U.S. Instead, they're fighting for a better future on the island. I'm staying, definitely. Yeah, I'm staying. I'm not even playing with that idea anymore. Maybe at some point as a human being I thought about my future but I'm convinced that my future is in here with my people with myself with my family with my history that's 32 year old Omar Reyes a law student at the Inter-American University of Puerto Rico what we are actually doing here is trying to work out the creation of a new politics I sat down with him and two other student activists who are organizing for what they call systemic change. That means a fight for free public education, improvements for the working class, and a more independent Puerto Rico. Here's 22-year-old Joshua Garcia Aponte. Maria, for me, it washed off the makeup from all the social problems that the island is facing. It revealed them. I think it's getting people to think our reality could be different if we work for it. 20-year-old Rocio Rodriguez says this effort won't happen through the traditional channels of politics, and it won't happen without the help of the diaspora. There are more than 5 million Puerto Ricans living on the mainland, nearly double the 3 or so million who remain on the island. And these young people see that diaspora as an essential part of the success of their activism. They've been there politically also, and they've been very important because they are actively talking about our situation in the in el imperio in the <laughs> in so, the empire right allies you know when you say diaspora it's it's just allies you know um, diaspora yeah they are Puerto Ricans out of out of the main island of, of Puerto Rico but they are human beings too, and they are allies that are working hard to support their communities, their people. And right after Maria, they, they are a key. Right now, they are a key for our projects. They are organizing actively all around the states. 
to support the communities, to support the different projects, and they are committed. The students' commitment to fight on the island goes back many years and has also been met with intense backlash from authorities. Most recently, the students have been protesting tuition increases that now require them to pay twice as much for their schooling. Rocio was among those arrested for participating in protests. I was arrested on May Day. I was fakely accused of hammering a police officer. On social media, it was on social media, I was accused that I was a murderer, that I had to go to jail for life, that they said horrible things, but people didn't understand it was a political thing. And it was for my mom, it was for me, it was for my brothers, it was for my family, for the, the working class. It was a very hard time because I'm doing this for my country, for the people I love, and then I'm having the rest of the island just come at me and telling me I'm a murderer because I almost killed a cop, but it wasn't like that. It was just fake. Every one of us who have been on the streets, we've been treated badly, actually. Omar Reyes was involved in the student strikes from 2010. Striking gave us the opportunity to think about self-governance, actually. You know, and that's why, uh, and we practiced that in the last um, strike in the UPR, so now we are, we are putting that in, in actual action after Maria. There's a word for that on the island, autogestión. And sitting down inside a communal kitchen on the Rio Piedras campus, I asked three student activists how Maria had impacted their view of life here and the possibilities of activism. I think after Maria, I've grown a lot and I've learned from the experience, especially in the University of Puerto Rico, from the students that suffered a lot more than I did. I learned a lot from them, and um, I think also I've learned to speak up more about the irresponsibilities of our government after the hurricane and how we still suffer from that a year ago. and. I've grown to appreciate a lot more um, the groups that create their own way of organization because they have been a lot of help throughout the process after Maria when we had no electricity, when we had no food, when we had no water. Those groups were very important after that. and. I've learned to appreciate them and to work with them and to collaborate with them. Well, look, Maria transformed me. Not just the way I view myself, but the way I view activism and the way that we are moving forward social transformation. In the first place, it was a familial clash. My family had an individualistic instinct to protect themselves, stay in their homes, I'm fine, so everyone else should figure out how to solve their own problems. And we had that clash because I believed more in the collective. And that clash forced me to leave my home. When Maria came, I was practically kicked out of my home because of my belief in the idea of solidarity and work around community self-governance. You know, what's interesting to me, too, is that we all know the phrase despierta boricua, which means wake up, Puerto Ricans, right? Are we woke? 
¿Están despiertos ahora? People are awake, definitely. But talking about generations, we, uh, for example, baby boomers, it's a generation that had a lot of fantasies in their mind, you know, and they transferred a little bit of that to us. And now we are dealing with the el choque, with the... With you the know, crash. With the crash, you know. And that crash is making us more conscious about that historical fact, you know. So it's not that we are not awake, because, yes, we are just uh, like Joshua said, people is talking about this, people is feeling, you know, people are human anyways, you know. So we have the, the mechanisms, uh, our natural mechanisms to, uh, to, to know about things. So... We are awake, yeah, and we've been uh, stand up all the all the all the time, you know. And sometimes uh, media is it's what uh, makes the appear uh, appearance, the apariencia, you know, that that people is, is not awake and uh, there's more confusion uh, about something. But nah, we aren't. We are awake. Those were student activists Omar Reyes, Joshua Garcia Ponte, and Rocio Rodriguez. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. One thing I learned quickly in my reporting here, that no matter what side you fall on, pro-independence like the students we just spoke to, pro-statehood, or just content with the status quo, when Maria hit, none of that really mattered. Puerto Ricans from all walks of life came together. After a long day of reporting here, it felt like time for a break. So we popped into a bar in Old San Juan, the historic district of the city. That's where I met Giovanni Rosario, who helps run the bar La Vergüenza. Well, hi guys. I'm 39 years old. I uh, live in Guaynabo, Puerto Rico. Uh, actually, I'm now working at La Vergüenza in Old San Juan. Beautiful place. Cheers, first of all. Salud, jóvenes. Salud. Salud. On a Sunday night, the bar was packed. Young and old alike, drinking and dancing. There was lots of dancing. And people were happy to talk about their home and how things have changed over the last year. My name is Mayrim. For me, Maria, is the most beautiful lesson is we trust in us. My name is Javier. I was born here in 1967, 50 years ago. Before the hurricane, the biggest mis misconception is that we weren't uh, American citizens. <laughs> Another patron told me that the storm's power had reached way beyond Puerto Rico's shores. The diaspora, the ones that live outside of this, the, the island, those people, they were hurting. They were hurting because they live here and they went through these different storms. And the fact that they were out there, they wanted to help and they did. 
Over the music and the joyful clinking of glasses, I heard the same message loud and clear, not only in La Vergüenza, but across the island. To survive, Puerto Ricans had to come together to rely on one another, and they did, again and again. Here's bar manager Giovanni. The first thing we do is, let's start cleaning the streets, let's start cleaning everything. This was a journey, actually. This is what it was. A new, a new journey, like a, we don't have time to read, we don't have time to cry, we need to rebuild. Then we start like cleaning our roads, we start helping each other, helping people, like if you can get gas, we're gonna do that for you. People start like a community dinners with everyone, if you have something to share, we have the cooks, everyone do his part. If we're gonna get out of this, we're gonna do, mano a la obra, mano a la obra. No time to bleed, no time to be sad. We're gonna have time for that. Let's do this. It's like, I'm hearing you and I'm hearing from a lot of people, it's like, you know what, we couldn't rely on anybody. And I feel like that's something that happens when you're a dual citizen like we are. There's like, we're living here, we're living there. We have all these like identities. And at the end of the day, we had to do it for ourselves. The thing is, in a personal way, you guys, it was a bless. Because this hurricane not only make a destruction, you know, they unify an entire country. As brothers, as sisters, doesn't matter what class you from, you come from. And I'm gonna say rich because the richer get richer and the poor gets poor. But people who has kind of a little bit money, middle class and poor class, unite. We get united as a country. As a people, one thing what's really getting me mad is the bad publicity they gave us to the U.S. and the world about, no, people are killing each other there, people are like uh, are fighting for food, for water and everything. No, that was an entire lie. People help each other. People like love each other. We bring the best out of from us. You can feel the love of the people. It was beautiful. Helping each other, like, uh, I don't know how to say it. I can't, I can't even explain what you feel. It's just like a proud, pride, honor. I don't know. There's no word for that. One possible word, resilience. The Takeaways coverage of Puerto Rico is supported in part by the Puerto Rico Relief and Rebuilding Fund of the Partnership for New York City, funder of Veterinarians for Puerto Rico, organized after Hurricane Maria to provide emergency care for abandoned and injured pets and strays on the island. Info at veterinariansforpr.org. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. is one of the most fundamental political challenges that Puerto Rico has in the past and in the present. 
For more than 400 years, Puerto Rico's economy was based on agriculture. And after World War II, there was an organized plan by the U.S. government to modernize, to shift things from agriculture to industry. And the repercussions of those policies have been felt for decades, including in the lead-up to Hurricane Maria. The combination of the abandonment of agriculture and the production of this captive market for U.S. goods, Puerto Ricans are consuming 85 percent uh, of their food comes from the U.S. or outside of Puerto Rico. It's imported. Now, that has all kinds of implications. That again is Francis Negron Muntaner, the Puerto Rican scholar we heard from at the top of the show. Food is very expensive, not only because it's imported, because of how it's imported. Uh, because the Jones Act of 1920, that means that goods that come to Puerto Rico have to be uh, moved through U.S. ships and through U.S. ports, which raises the price of goods. And of course, you're getting less fresh goods, a lot of canned goods, uh, less healthy food. Also, if you walk through Puerto Rico, you'll see that uh, during that process, you also have an expansion of fast food type of outlets. Walmarts. Walmarts, Walgreens. Walgreens uh, is everywhere. <laughs> everywhere, every few steps. So I would say that actually food is something that you just cannot take for granted. That on an island with such fertility, uh, tropical climate, you know, natural resources uh, for cultivation, it doesn't make any sense to be importing 85% of your food. It is killing us. It is killing us in, in every aspect. Hector Santiago has been in the business for decades. I'm a farmer, but also I'm an agronomist. Hector says the imported food has made Puerto Ricans unhealthy. In the United States, the mainland need us to be consumers. That, that's why they bring us the, their junk food, because it will make a lot of people fat, a lot of people uh, unhealthy. So we will need more uh, medications to be in health. So it is like a circle that we only produce money for the big companies. That's why the importance of these new things that the millennials are bringing to, to the way of life we are in the right time to do things better. What he's referring to there is a new movement by young people on the island to return to farming and agriculture. Right before Maria, we were in a new beginning of the agriculture in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, the new generation, as we call them, the millennials, they think differently. The average age of the farmer in Puerto Rico is 62 years old. So it, it's, it's a dying industry. But the new generation, the millennials, they are going back to our roots, professionalizing the, the agriculture. A lot of people that come from other disciplines, for example, physicians, engineers, lawyers, they're putting their money in agriculture. But then Maria hit. Just a few hours into the storm, 80% of the island's crop values were wiped away. Farmers suffered millions in losses. Hector experienced it firsthand. It was like a horror film. It was uh, something that we didn't expect to be uh, as brutal as it was. Everything was destroyed, uh, all the structures, the greenhouses, all the vegetation around. The devastation was awful. It looked like, like the atomic bomb. Everything was burned. And what about the other farmers that you know? Did they suffer similar um, damage? Similar and um, some others worse. For example, uh, if you go to the mountains, to the coffee plantations, they not only lose their coffee, they lose their trees, they lose their soil. 
all the organic matter it was washed out so there are farms that they cannot be used again after the damage after the storm passed what was rebuilding like what was it to to rebuild the farm did you have federal help from the United States federal government? Did you have help from the state government? Like, how did you start to rebuild? Uh, no, unfortunately, I have to say that we we fix ourselves. Uh, we pay insurances uh, with the USDA, and we made all the paperwork uh, back in October last year, but still we are waiting almost a year I know that I, I, I have visited them. I know they're working on it, but we need it now. We, we, we cannot like keep waiting for that. In my personal uh, experience, I didn't lay off any of my employees. So I spent all my life savings uh, maintaining my business alive. They're like my family. They, they were the ones who gave me the fuel to continue. Hector says the farming industry is slowly in recovery and there is a path forward. It's a combination of government support and private partnerships. And he says the locals need to continue to invest in crops too. Farming, he says, is the key. Without it, Puerto Rico will never be successful. I always tell uh, to people that the strength of the United States is not their natural resources, it's not their guns, it's not uh, their land. Is their is the farm? Is their farm industry? Is what they produce? They they feed the world. All the great nations worldwide, they have great agriculture. So we as a as an island, we depend on on everything. Right now, only fifteen percent we are producing, and that's a shame because we have a, a very good weather. We have good land. We have the best professional comes out from the University of Puerto Rico. Uh, we export our knowledge to all over the planet. So why don't use that for us? So you see a way for this to actually, the change to help Puerto Rican farmers, not just the multinational companies. Yeah, yeah. It, it is, it's, it's like a different way of life. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a movement that uh, we have created. For that to work, is for people to patrocinate, for people to buy, to, to for people to understand that each dollar you spend in a local product, we stay here. That that there is a family behind that. That that tells you that that we have something good going on, and we have to keep uh, helping people to understand that yes, uh, we are part of the United States, and and. They are good to us, but we can do our own things, and, and we have the ability to, to do our own things. Hector Santiago is a farmer in Puerto Rico. He lost everything after Hurricane Maria and is now in the process of rebuilding his farm and fighting for Puerto Ricans to return to agriculture. The Takeaways coverage of Puerto Rico is supported in part by the Puerto Rico Relief and Rebuilding Fund of the Partnership for New York City, funder of Comprometidos, an organization of young professionals on the island and the diaspora contributing to the recovery and renewal of the island. Info at conprmetidos.org. Sunday, 
Loco de contento con su cargamento para la ciudad. One thing we've definitely established this hour is that Puerto Ricans are still feeling the effects of Maria. Puerto Ricans on the island are rebuilding, and the diaspora is also mobilized. And as they look to the future, people and organizations are still in search of solutions to the problems big and small created or underscored by the storm. And in the days, weeks, and months ahead, we'll keep following what's happening here on the island and on the mainland, including the solutions people and communities are finding to the problems that Maria created or made worse. So, mi gente boricuas, Puerto Ricans, please tell us your stories of making life better on the island. Cuéntanos tus historias sobre la reconstrucción de la isla. What are you trying to do? And is it working? Give us a call at 877-8MY-TAKE. Llámanos al 877-869-8253. Meanwhile, Stephanie Rios is thinking beyond rebuilding, and you'll remember we met her at the top of the hour. She works for La Olla Común, a center for mutual support in Rio Piedras. I believe that there's always more than one solution. Um, for us here in the mutual support centers and in the project that, we, that we're building, it's about building these community bases. It's about trying to decolonize each other and ourselves and strive to both build something and, sh and live our lives with as much dignity as we can because that's resistance in itself, but also to show the government and other people that we can do this. So I think that if it's something that we don't see as feasible, then we need to imagine it and we need to build it. And that can look at, like a lot of things and it can have many forms, but it needs to happen. And, and I think that what's important is that we're building towards it. Sometimes we want this solution tomorrow. We want, we want to be you know, free and liberated and without problems tomorrow, and that's what we all want, but these forces are big, right? Colonial capitalism is a big monster and disaster capitalism is just jumping on its back. So we're building towards that in many ways. Stephanie Rios of La Olla Común, a center for mutual support on the island. Last year, in the wake of Hurricane Maria, texts and Facebook messages and phone calls from loved ones started trickling in, asking whether we, Puerto Ricans on the island or in the diaspora, were okay. And I wasn't really sure how to answer them. I mean, what does it mean to be okay in the wake of such devastation? What does it mean to be okay after years of economic crisis? I mean, what does okay look like for one of the oldest colonies in the world? A year ago, I predicted that the crisis would signal a new political awakening among Puerto Ricans eager to examine the colonial status of the island and prevent further economic and cultural erosion. And I was right. What I've learned on this journey to Puerto Rico to see family and meet with activists and conservatives and farmers is that for many Puerto Ricans, it's just not enough to be okay. Drive around San Juan and amid the storm-weathered cement buildings and blinking traffic lights or spray-painted signs declaring autogestión or self-governance as one solution to empowering Puerto Ricans. And Puerto Ricans say they want to be free, free to invest in their island, free to fully participate in the democratic process of the United States. But most importantly, they just want to be free from the mental and political chains of colonialism. 
Just listen to these two students we heard from earlier. They're from opposite sides of the political spectrum. We have for many years been talking about the liberation of Puerto Rico and everything else. But how are we going to push for liberation if people living here do not feel free? I have seen how not being treated equally has resulted in a lot of the problems we have right now. Obviously, also mixed with bad administration, uh, a lot of corruption cases over the years, and some other elements that have been sometimes our fault and sometimes more of a result of the whole uh, status and situation, political situation we're in. And unlike many of us on the mainland and in the media, the Puerto Ricans we spoke to are not hanging on to every tweet the president sends. Instead, they're doing the work of rebuilding, and they are deeply proud of their resilience. Me, I don't take welfare or coupons or food stamps or none of that. My father, your grandfather, taught me how to survive. Visiting my Aunt Carmen in the town of Barceloneta, where I spent my summers as a child, reminded me of that. Because when we came to, from New York to Puerto Rico, we didn't even have light. So we survived the candles, but he taught us how to survive. As she cooked a pot of arroz con pollo and stuffed bacalaitos or codfish fritters into our hands, she told us stories of sharing whatever food she had with her neighbors and with the American workers from Oklahoma who came to fix her electricity. Let's say I would make three cups of rice, so I would give half to her. If I would buy tomato, if I would find an eggs, I would take six for me, six for her, because there wasn't no eggs, there was nothing. For the neighbors? For the neighbors. She joked about being able to survive pretty much anything after Maria, even if that meant she had to eat soup made of stones. How are you going to survive, Tansy? How are you going to get water? And her will didn't surprise me. I mean, her father, my grandfather, was a World War II veteran, the epitome of resilience and the will to survive. But it was my conversation with Maria Villegas, a volunteer at Taller Salud in Loisa, Puerto Rico, that struck me the most. Before the hurricane, Maria said she didn't realize how capable she was. Soon after, she was making house calls to some of her most vulnerable neighbors, including many senior citizens who needed power, medicine, or just human contact. Son cosas que ni nosotras mismas sabíamos, o quizás sabíamos que teníamos, pero no sabía cómo desarrollarlas. Y de verdad que me siento... So Maria is basically saying that there are things we didn't even know we were capable of. And even if we did, we didn't know our own strength. And she goes on to say she's feeling stronger as a woman and she knows that she can contribute something to help people. I asked her how the hurricane had changed her and her own expectations for the future. I believe in myself and that I can accomplish many things, Maria told me as she wiped away tears. She said she used to think she would always be a rural housewife attending to her husband. But now she thinks about becoming a healthcare professional. She feels empowered, but this empowerment is coming from within. And she told me, I'm going to accomplish a lot. I learned from the hurricane that we are stronger than we think. I believe that there's always more than one solution. They feel this duty to help Puerto Rico in one way or another. Puerto Ricans aren't happy with the political situation and we are going to fight back. 
This special hour of The Takeaway was produced with the help of a fantastic staff. The team with me in Puerto Rico include Ellen Frankman, our senior producer, Jay Cowett, our director, and Jose Olivares, our associate producer. Back in New York, Alex Boti, Isabel Angel, Vince Fairchild, Claire McKean, and Gwen Hogan contributed to the show. David Gable, our administrative assistant, organized all the logistics to make this trip possible. Irva Gunja is our executive producer and edited the episode. And a big thanks to all the folks at WIPR here in San Juan for hosting us all this week. Chucky, Giovanni, Bobby, and Francisco, thank you so much for your hospitality. Hector Santiago, the farmer we heard from earlier, spoke of the resilience of the staff here as well and said that the work that they did in the days after the storm was crucial. Here in, in WIPR, all the employees came to work without power in their homes, without water, and to inform uh, and to let people know what was happening to see what, what we can do. That means a lot as a nation, as, as a people. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Tanzina Vega, and this is After the Storm, a special hour from The Takeaway.